2: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So little was known then and even now about how young female athletes develop physically. And that was the world Lauren Fleshman had to contend with for 30 years as a runner coming up in the 90s and 2000s. Now a coach, Fleshman is calling out the inequity and toxicity in elite sports, the exploitation by corporate sponsors when female athletes go pro, and candidly sharing her own personal struggles all in hopes of rebuilding a sports system to make it good for a girl, which also happens to be the title of her new book. Lauren Fleshman joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Lauren Fleshman set records as a runner at Canyon High School in Santa Clarita Valley. At Stanford, she won five NCAA titles. As a pro, two national championships. But throughout her career, Fleshman saw many elite female runners leave the sport, devastated by injury, eating disorders, and psychological stress. We fold and smash women and girls into a male based infrastructure and then scratch our heads when the same friction points show up again and again, she writes. The refusal to acknowledge this is causing incredible harm. Her new book, part memoir, part manifesto, is called Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. Lauren
1: Fleshman, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited.
2: We talked before the show about how my sister also ran cross-country for Canyon High in the late 80s under the same coach you did for a very short time before we moved away from Santa Clarita in the middle of her freshman year. But I could tell in reading your book how much your love for running really blossomed there and how you felt invincible. What what do you love about running? What does it do for you?
1: Well, it started as just a you know, way it does with a lot of kids that burst into a run before they're even ready and they tumble constantly. I think there was a natural urge to move my body. And then once I started moving quickly, it was a way to connect with my body, like my animal self. It was like, the faster I went, the more primal I felt. And and as you push your limits in something, you know, it narrows your focus to yourself and the earth. Um, and so that was addictive really and then once I started realizing it was a team sport in high school it brought all those other elements you know DeLong is such a wonderful coach and he created an incredible community so being able to connect with a friend group um, people that were just so open-hearted open arms and pushing ourselves to to new places together that was that was something that I also really loved and the exploration aspect of running it wasn't like I was on a tennis court every day I got to go places I got to see the mountains that I previously only saw from my kitchen window I got to stand on top of them and that was something that I never I've never been the same no matter where I go in my car I'm always looking out my window for where the trails might be
2: yeah that's such a great description of all the incredible things that that running can bring you, which also when it's set against what clearly started as an inkling um, that girls and boys developed differently physically, and that the way that girls developed differently was something that should be almost avoided, um, Mm -hmm. is kind of what makes it so sad. Can you give me a sense of when you started getting those inklings, what kind of messages you were receiving?
1: Yeah, I think the first messages that I was receiving was was an empty space where a message should have been. And that Mm -hmm. was middle school. And I was a late bloomer, so my body didn't change um, from female puberty until 16, 17, really. But around me in middle school, um, that's when breast development on average begins occurring. And the girls that I previously ran around the neighborhood with were less enthusiastic about playing hide and seek. And um and there might have been social elements to that too, but one was definitely the body. There was a lot of holding their chest down, a lot of discomfort in their breasts, um, people that weren't just wearing a sports bra around. There wasn't the adequate support. So just the the embodied experience of moving was changing all around me. And it wasn't being talked about. Breasts were only sexualized. They weren't talked about as a part of our our being like our just our body, like an elbow or a hand that is going to impact biomechanics and physics when you move. And it just wasn't acknowledged. And that's when girls are dropping out of sport at twice the rate of boys, and we lose half of girls from sport by age 17. And that's an international phenomenon. It's not just the United States things. And of course, there's a lot of factors contributing to that. But the one we don't seem to talk about is bodies changing, um, and how that is impacting someone's psychology, that how they relate to their body and how they view movement as a thing they will or won't continue doing.
2: So if this were a sports system that was good for a girl, as is the title of your book, how would puberty be talked about? How would it be treated?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. If I really can frame a lot of this as like, if this happened to males, what would happen? Um, there would be a sports bra in every locker, Right around that age, it would be a federally issued piece of equipment. It would come just like um, jock straps. You know, it's like understood that there's going to need to be additional support. There's going to need to be conversations had, um, and there would be um, breast education. Just like being able to say the word breast without flinching, <laughs> and having those kinds of expectations of our of our teachers or whatever the health teachers, et cetera. And um and then at every stage in the, the passage that you read about being squeezed into this male-based system and there's these predictable friction points that come up over and over again, those are all those all begin with just the body itself changing. And so anytime the body is changing, we need to be talking about it, acknowledging it, and asking ourselves if the system is supporting it. Is there a need being that's not being met here?
2: Another one of those friction points frequently is also menstruating or your period. You wrote in the book, a period was a rite of passage into womanhood and womanhood didn't stand for anything I wanted. How would you reframe the importance of a period to a female athlete now as well? Well,
1: yeah, period, still 87% of girls in this research study from two years ago, don't feel comfortable talking to their coach about their period um, and over half have menstrual dysfunction. And, and that is related to the sporting environment of inadequate nutrition and the demands being asked of the body, not evening out with the um, fuel being provided to the body. And so if we have an environment where we know dysfunction is happening in large amounts, but people can't talk about it, that's obviously a huge problem. Um, But we also have when like a period is something that i feel like either isn't talked about or it's talked about with euphemisms um we can't just say the word usually it's something that next we associate with ickiness overall as a society like there's like a a dirtiness um around it that is in a lot of our lexicon and then we also have men- um fertility that's the other the third thing like i'd say most female bodied people would know those three things whether they're spoken or not that those are what a period is about But it's also this monthly cycle of these hormones, it's like a very rich symphony of hormones that impacts way more than fertility, bone health, immune function, libido, mental health, Um, just to name a few, recovery rates, pain tolerance. And so when you're having menstrual dysfunction, it's not a matter of like, I think a lot of young people think, oh, well, yeah, bone density, that's way down the line. I don't need to worry about it right now. Or babies, not on my radar whatever. Um, But no, it's, it's affecting you now not getting your period regularly is, is immediately negatively impacting your goals and your coach's goals. And so we need to be talking about it.
2: Yeah, I was struck by how it was a point of pride for you almost to have not had it till you were 17 like you had been able to keep it at bay um, as opposed to what you're describing now, which is if that is happening consistently, that's actually a point of being able to talk about it in the way that it contributes to your athletic performance.
1: Yeah, it was this thing that you think I would think of my period, my menstrual cycle also coming with this complete package of what I viewed as a woman's body with breasts and curves and hips and the body of a mother, right? Because it was associated with fertility. The period was a body was going to be a one-way ticket to the body of a mother. And that body was not valued in the sporting environment. That body was told that it needed to be leaner, that it needed to look different move different whatever and there was a fear and still is that puberty is something one coach said is an injury a girl can't come back from it's viewed as this well we'll see roll the dice when your body changes you may or may not have have this thing you love anymore the way you currently have it and that's such a myth and it's extremely damaging in fact getting your period going through these body changes is a it is a rite of passage for an athlete for much more than motherhood or whatever you all the record holders um in our sport and in sports are from people in their woman body they're grown-ass women in a woman body and so you need to go through these changes to get to your ultimate strongest self and even though those changes may commonly cause a period of time where you're making adjustments you feel uncomfortable you may plateau in performance or even get a little bit worse for a short while We need to welcome those changes with open arms because they're taking us to our strongest self and the place that we ultimately want to go.
2: Yeah. It sounds like you're almost describing the the need to reimagine what success means for athletes. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Especially for athletes of that age. If you're not acknowledging a completely different performance trajectory for 12 to 22 year old female bodied people, the sports system was made for 12 to 22 year old male bodied people whose Puberty and performance trajectory tends to be linear. You get out what you put in, hard work equals results, like all these refrigerator magnet wisdoms that we like to say about sports, they don't apply in the same universal way to female-bodied people. You can work harder when you're in the the throes of puberty and get worse for a short period of time. Um, And so we have to reimagine what success looks like, as you say, to include Periods of plateau, periods of decline even in one measurable way, while improvement is happening in a bunch of invisible ways under the surface that take longer to bloom.
2: I love this idea of so much happening invisibly that is so positive. Um, And just thinking about it in those ways is so different you talk about the kinds of messages that we get about female puberty and periods and breasts and so on from society. It sounds like some of it also came from your family, your dad.
1: Yeah, I think that um, my dad was misogynistic and he was very much like the patriarch of the family. He was also an extremely loving father and my biggest fan and wanted to knock down every barrier in the world for his daughters Um, and and then treated my mom very differently, uh, which was less empowering. And, you know, there's studies that show that that men want independent, um, outspoken daughters, but they don't necessarily want the same qualities in a partner in hetero relationships. And that, I mean, that's really striking. And that's what I was living. It's not an uncommon experience, even though the details of the alcoholism or some of those things might not be present everywhere. Um, but yeah, his, his he, he sexualized women and women bodies a lot. He commented on um, the top track and field athletes. The first time I watched the Olympics on TV as a freshman in high school, he talked about how one of like, he noticed that they, one of them was beautiful and he made sure to comment on that. There wasn't a lot of commenting on the performances themselves or the bravery or the courage. And so you watch the way people watch others, you know, like we talk a lot about how I'm a parent myself. We think a lot about what we say to our kids, how we teach our kids, but really they're like watching us interact with our world. And I tried to capture that in the book because I want people to read this book and realize that it's not just the spoken things they say, but the things that they um, are believing in themselves.
2: More with Lauren Fleshman after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Lauren Fleshman set records as a high school student and as an athlete at Stanford, winning five NCAA titles, a 15-time All-American, two national titles as a professional. But throughout her running career, saw many teammates leave the sport or develop physical or mental health issues, eating disorders, and the like. Her new book is Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World, and she's challenging the way sports The sports world treats its female athletes. Before the break, we were just talking about how inundated female athletes are with all kinds of messages. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Were you a female athlete growing up? How did you feel about puberty or the body changes you went through? How did you feel like they were messaged to you? Or did you feel like you had to fight against the male gaze? If you're a runner, what draws you to that particular sport? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Monica tweets, I love what Lauren Fleshman just said, that sports bras would become standard issue equipment in every locker room once young women's bodies start changing if we treated women athletes the way we treat male athletes. You know, I was really shocked, Lauren, by the stat that some 65%, we're talking nearly two-thirds of female athletes, develop disordered eating habits. Um, You had a pretty healthy relationship with eating growing up and through much of your running career, but when did that start to change for you?
1: It started to change when um, I started to believe the messages that there was an ideal body and that that ideal body looked different from my own. Um, that there would was this extra 2% of change to my body that could be the difference between winning and losing. And that, um, a a disciplined female body of, you know, it was around age 20, 21, where the messages finally started to impact me and not just the people around me, that I would be better if I just lost a few pounds, Uh, that there's this misnomer that you people will look at the physiology and like a little formula that shows your VO2 max, or your, you know, based on kilograms body weight, as if that's the only factor. Nobody is studying female athletes in any comprehensive way. So this is male based data being applied to females, which is problematic in so many ways but there are more, like body fat in a female body is about more than how you're moving through space it's a, you may need a certain amount of body fat for healthy immune function um for like a to keep yourself out of depression um you have some magical place your body wants to be for optimal holistic health and that outweighs any little tiny potential gain you may get from carrying around one or two less pounds in a physics formula and we just don't respect those other parts of it as much as we respect the physics formula because we've never been asked to really we've never, it's never been demanded and we're kind of happy. It seems to just let thousands of girls um, experience the consequences of emphasizing the formula.
2: Yeah. You do mention that at the beginning, you, after losing a little bit of weight, you did experience an improvement in Maybe race times, right? Or in terms of those kinds of successes. And that that can be really confusing because that can be really addictive. And that it's really hard to know where to go with that, how far to take that.
1: Yeah, and underneath the surface, again, it's these invisible things, like the, the positive invisible things happening in our body we aren't making space for. And then we're, re- we're overemphasizing a little bit, like shaving five seconds off of your 5K time when underneath the surface, my bone cells are not able to keep up anymore with the breakdown rate where it used to be some would break down a day and some would rebuild a day and it kept some sort of homeostasis. Now I'm out of homeostasis, but I don't know it. And it's working its way. It's chiseling down my bone density slowly over time. And the consequences come a year or two later in a a timeline that makes it hard to put the two together. And there's a kind of this common thing in women's sports of a fluke injury. Oh, I don't know why this happened. It doesn't seem related to the training or the this or the that. There is no such thing as a fluke. We're just looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the wrong part of the timeline in an athlete's life.
2: Yeah. I was struck by how you included your own internalization of these kinds of messages, that you went through your own journey of um, evolving from thinking primarily that this was a fluke, or this was the athlete's fault, or the athlete just couldn't cut it. Why was it important for you to include those things?
1: Well, because it was true. I think that when you're in any dominant system, success usually at first looks like mimicking The behaviors and patterns and ideals of the dominant group. And I did that. I blamed my teammates for their failures, for their injuries, because that's what the system was doing. And I wanted to be on the successful side of the system. Um, and like, I loved compliments like, oh, you're just like one of the guys. Because to me and to the to my environment, the guys represented the ultimate form of excellence. And to be a successful female athlete meant mimicking that as closely as possible. And then once I'm getting older, I'm realizing, why is it that so few of us are able to do that. If that is a realistic measure of success for female-bodied people, how come only a few are getting through? And this is sort of tangential, but it reminds me of American Ninja Warrior, that show that like took the world by storm. And when the first um, woman made it to like the final round, people on the internet were responding like, "Oh, this is see, women can do anything men can do," and blah blah blah. And I'm like, okay, why aren't we asking the question? Why has only one done it? And why are we not addressing the course? that's designed for a certain average reach and a certain average like strength rate. And if only a small, tiny percentage of female bodies can do that, that should not be the standard for female body people.
2: Well, we're getting calls. Let me go to Jenna in Oakland. Hi, Jenna. Join us.
1: Hi. Hi.
2: You're on. Go right ahead. What's on your mind?
4: Well, thank you for this. I loved softball when I was younger. Loved it. And I was pretty good at it. But I developed really very curvy, and I gave it up. I quit because of comments that grown men, including fathers, made uh, about me, About uh, that I'd hear them make about other girls, and there was zero support for periods or boobs. Uh, where We wore white softball pants. There was no discussion yeah. about it or support or backup or anything, and most of our coaches were men. There was nothing. And so I gave it up, yeah. even
2: though I loved it. What's amazing am is guessing... you played softball. Lord, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, I played softball, too. And even something as seemingly simple as white pants is a barrier. It's another invisible barrier where we mimic what is used in this other side of sport without thinking about the lived realities of the bodies wearing the pants. And the, the comment that you made about hearing dad's grown men talk about your body or other women's bodies like sport is is sold to us as this space where we can use our body in powerful ways like almost like a little oasis outside of the rest of the world that sexualizes us or asks us to see ourselves through the male gaze and yet it's it's not a safe space And there are people like you leaving in large numbers because it's no longer a safe space. And it's a distraction from the the reason, the things that drew you to the place. So every day you're showing up to this place that should be safe. And the outside world forces are trickling in because sport is made up of people and people are the result of our environment and bringing that into those spaces. We have to be talking about it.
2: Jenna, thanks so much for the call. This listener writes, I'm a dancer who grew up in the 60s. The ideal female dancer looked like a man, no breasts, no hips, the strength of a man without the bulk. Who ate coffee and cigarettes all day and then load in at night, short lived. There's like this duality. There's this idea that you shouldn't have hips or breasts or avoid that um, as you're coming of age to be a really strong and powerful athlete and not to lose that performance edge. But at the same time, there is this expectation that female athletes look like the ideal of a straight male gaze, of a straight male idea of what femininity is. And you say very plainly, uh, Lauren, the competitive sports world, the NCAA was founded by men for men and incorporated straight male ideals of what an athlete should look like. Can you talk about navigating this sort of very narrow, allowable space for female athletes? Yeah, it seems
1: that, well, there was this misnomer that we did, that we do need to look like a man. And I think the dancer's um, example shows that that was extremely prominent then and continues to this day. There are some allowances being made where we're more open minded than ever. Um, that there could be more body diversity in female bodies aligned with excellence than we thought before. You can really see it in gymnastics, like the bodies of gymnasts in the 2021 Olympics versus the 20 uh, the 1996 Olympics. And, Um, what tennis champions can look like. Um, We still have blowback from media, from fans like calling Serena Williams fat while she's kicking everybody's butt. (laughs) There's still this dissonance in the head of so many people that refuse to see Serena's body not as an exception to the rule, but a new rule. And we need to, and, And it's actually like encouraging to me that we are starting to have more athletes expanding the idea of, what the rule is of what excellence can look like.
2: This listener also writes, here we are as powerful women, proud of our muscles and strength. Yet we have to worry about how we look and what will be said about us when we line up on the starting line. Do men ever have to worry about how they, quote, look when they're getting ready to perform in a race or game or worry that their shorts are too tight or too short? It's so maddening. Why do women have to run in a bikini but Usain Bolt wears short there's this passage in your book um when you're going pro where you are talking with sports marketing executives you're you're trying to represent yourself initially and the kinds of conversations that you had with them is so incredibly revealing about this kind of pressure and where it comes from i'm wondering if you wouldn't mind reading that for us
1: oh i'd love to Every sports marketing executive I met with was a cisgender white man. Two asked if I had a boyfriend, and when I said no, they said, good. I was more valuable marketing asset as a single woman. When we got to the topic of marketability, I presented my vision for helping change girls' sport and reach a female audience in the process. They acted like my ideas were cute. The audience that mattered wasn't girls. One said, men are the ones that watch sports, not women. The female athletes worth watching are the ones that appeal to men. It's gross, but it's the way it is. Do you know where the best seats to watch women's track are? Another one asked. Where? The starting line of the women's 1500. Do you know why? I shook my head no. Think of the view. The best bodies in the sport are all lined up in little more than bathing suits. I tried to hide my disgust, but my face must have betrayed me. What? I'm not saying that's how I feel, but that's just the reality of every young guy watching women's track. My job is to get them to buy shoes.
2: We're talking with Lauren Fleshman, and she just read an excerpt from Good for a Girl, a, room, a woman running in a man's world. And we're inviting you, our listeners to share your experiences as an athlete growing up. If you were a female athlete, how did you feel about puberty or the body changes you went through Have you had to fight against male ideals or the male gaze as an athlete? Are you a runner? What draws you to the sport of running? How have you seen it evolve and change or not? Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. You eventually signed with Nike and... They wanted to do some ads with you. Can you talk about the conversation around your, quote, objectify me ad?
1: Yes. um, I was 26 at the time. I'd won my first national title and I'd reached a level of accomplishment where the sports marketing department wanted to use me in an ad. I was going to be the face of the first women-specific running shoe built on a women's last in the in the company, a big big campaign, um, and it was a huge opportunity for me in an obscure sport. You know, I was not Serena Williams, diva level, not even close. um And so I was thrilled. But then when the look and feel came for the campaign into my inbox, the image that the campaign was to be based on was of Brandy Chastain bent over a soccer ball, naked, and it was a side view, and you couldn't see in nipples or cracks or anything, but clearly naked body black and white image very vulnerable position and i just thought why are we doing this why is it that when some a female athlete makes it we still need to depict them in a vulnerable position and display their body and it is for it relates to that passage. It's for it's viewing women's sports as still something for men and female athletes as something for the male gaze to appreciate and look at. And therefore we need to curate the players and choose the ones who are the the ones they want to look at. And it was maddening because my entire passion was about inspiring young girls. I wanted the ad to be for them. And they knew that they, but they're entrenched in the culture. And so I think I don't really fault them for following the script that had been presented and baked in to everybody for so long. Um, But it was still really difficult to come back and say, hey, I know this is a huge opportunity. I don't want to be a difficult woman because that's a quick way to get ejected from the room. But I don't want to do it this way. And here's why. This is a better idea. And to my delight, I was heard. And the ad was changed and it was changed in a collaborative way where it really led with my voice. Um, And so I I think that that story, I love that telling it because it shows like that the systems are really entrenched. We are vulnerable in trying to speak up and change them. We aren't exactly in a position of security when you're in the minority in the group. Um, And it may or may not be met with affirmation in other stories. When I tried to change things, I was shut down. So it really is a risk to speak up.
2: It is. The objectify me had sort of two different meanings. One was almost like objectify me if you dare because of the way that you look directly into the camera when you're saying it. But also it was use. It was also the message that we were going to look closely finally at the needs of the female body people for our design in our gear and so on. Right. That was Mm -hmm. was the whole point. Yeah.
1: Well, and that was the part that they got right in their ad pitch was they, but they had it in their perspective. Nike objectifies women was going to be the title. And it was all in Nike's voice of how we are here as the savior to come in and study you and make you a shoe. And we flipped it to me giving them permission to objectify me, but on my terms, twisting the meaning and then like demanding what I needed, how I wanted to be studied and what I deserved.
2: Let me go to caller Taya in Marin. Hi, Taya.
1: Hi, good
2: morning. Good morning.
4: Mind? I just uh, wanted to thank you for this and ask, uh, I didn't hear your whole broadcast, but whether or not you're familiar with the work of Dr. Stacy Sims, uh, whose slogan is women are not small men. Hmm.
2: Yes. <laughs> oh,
1: yes, okay. Dr. Stacey okay. Sims' work is really um, important and was a, a really powerful book for me to read, just a book focused on female physiology, female performance, the embodied experiences of the female body. And I think that there's still a lot of work that needs to be built upon her work. And I know that she's been extremely brave in pushing that forward.
2: We're talking with Lauren Fleshman. The book is Good for a girl, a woman running in a man's world. And you, our listeners, can continue to join the conversation by posting your thoughts or questions for Lauren on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can email comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Are you the parent of a female athlete? Is what you are hearing resonating with you? Is it raising concerns about your own child's health or development are you a runner what draws you to that particular sport the way that lauren is if you look back on your experience as a female athlete growing up do some of these experiences resonate with you stay with us for more after the break this is forum i'm mina kim This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Lauren Fleshman about being a woman running in a man's world. Her new book is Good for a Girl, where she shares her own personal experiences, but also talks about the changes that are needed in competitive sports to make sure that it accounts for the female-bodied experience. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with questions and comments. Sam writes... I'm a lifelong former NCAA Division I runner, and I learned so much reading the book. I ran cross-country and track for Cal here in the Bay Area, and it was such a toxic environment and left me with lifelong health issues. I was very straightforward with all my health providers that I never got my period. I truly thought this was completely normal for runners. I am still so angry no one recognized the constant injuries that ended my collegiate career were related to insufficient energy simply because I never, quote, looked unhealthy. Everyone who coaches and works with girls and women should read Lauren's book, So Grateful for Your Voice, Lauren. Wow, her experience, Thank and this you. is what you say so often, um, Sam's experience is something that we hear over and over and over again. And you say that even when Exposures of really toxic coaching that really doesn't understand the experience of female athletes or what they're going through physically is exposed. Little is done or not enough is done.
1: Yeah, I think there's still an attribution of blame on the woman instead of the system that is creating the environment. We don't have any mandatory coaching education. Or coaches working with female-bodied people, there is a, a like system-wide assumption that any knowledge that applies to male athletes applies to us as well. And it's a little bit like sink or swim—you either hack it in this place or you don't. And in collegiate programs, like we're replaceable. You know, every year there's new recruits, um, and and it's and we'll be gone. In our relation, they don't get to follow the rest of the story. What is our relationship with food, with our body, with movement for many years to come after those experiences? And this isn't just elite college, this is recreational, junior level sports, high school level sports. I mean, the numbers of people affected in this way are massive. But hearing stories like Sam's and hearing stories, I'm getting a lot of stories like this of people saying, I didn't imagine it. This really was attributed to something else besides my lack of discipline or whatever it is that a coach told them or they internalized from society. And that shift in a person, that's why I want so many people to read this book, that shift in a person that can re-examine your past and the story about yourself that came from that so that you can have a new story moving forward.
2: You've been described as one of the fastest distance runners to never make the Olympics. I'm wondering what role some of the injuries you sustained, especially after you tried to change your eating habits, if you think it played one and if that haunts you at all. I,
1: I believe 100% I would have made the Olympics at least once, maybe twice, maybe more if I had just accepted my body as what it was and had had been taught how important my period was, and that having a few quote, extra pounds, I don't know what the extra refers to, it's someone else's version of some other thing that's supposed to be the normal amount of pounds, that that way that my body looked was just right. It was the way my body was supposed to look when it's functioning holistically, I for sure would have, I think, made the Olympic team. You can't, um, it's so hard to make up for the time you spend on the bench injured, starting over, over and over again, those consistent years of stringing together training and racing. I mean, that's priceless, not to mention just walking around more confidently in your body with less of your energy dedicated to someone else's opinion of you, someone else's value of you, how you're being viewed, what body comments your agent, that coach, that spectator is making, that media reporter about your body.
2: You tell the athletes that you coach or you ask them this question, what is running to you and who are you if there are no races, no championships, no money to be made, no performance aspect at all, then what? I guess I'm wondering if you ask that question because it's questions you asked yourself, especially in the wake of what sounds like an experience of what could have been with regard to the Olympics.
1: Yeah, I think that I, um, the Olympics is an important part of the story because it's the ultimate example in my sport of externally validated success. And whatever that externally validated success is, it could be in STEM, it could be in academia, it can be in all kinds of places. We're expected to morph ourselves and change ourselves in order to meet that. Kind of, and any number of wounds, like shrapnel is accepted as part of that rather than questioning the thing itself. So I'm glad I didn't make the Olympics because I couldn't have written this book because it represented a fundamental challenging of why do I actually love to run? I've, I, when I had the dream taken away from me, if I were going to continue to pursue the sport, I had to reconnect with that, that child self that loved movement, that felt like an animal, you know, that loved teammates, that loved the long run, that loved putting my arms out like wings as I went down a downhill through Hutter Park or whatever. Like, I, I didn't need to outgrow that version of me to be successful. I actually needed to reconnect with that version of me more strongly.
2: Let me go to caller Ann and Orinda. Hi, Ann, you're on.
1: Hi, thank you for the fascinating conversation. And I'm part of a women's water polo team with women age 38 to 78. And many of us wanted to play when we were younger, but it wasn't available to us. And it's absolutely been a wonderful experience. And one of my favorite things to do is to be around people, primarily men, and say, what sport do you think we play? And they'll pick tennis, they'll pick
4: They'll never pick water polo because it's such an association with men and um, strength and flexibility, and they never think that we old women can do it.
2: (laughs) That's amazing. And that's awesome. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. Um, Mary writes, thank you for addressing this issue. I was a competitive springboard diver, and in addition to the pressures to keep our bodies, quote, perfect for the judges, gays, the greatest critiques of our bodies and our food consumption came from girls and young women on our teams. I remember my co-captain on a swim team declaring that she had only had a box of raisins that day and her wondering aloud if I too had been able to skip breakfast and lunch. In a sport like diving where balance is crucial for execution and safety, the deprivations of calories that I and my teammates pursued was likely implicated in injuries we suffered. This was the 80s, so I hope things have improved." Well, with all the salads, Lauren Fleshman, that uh, all the runners that you encountered when you were running so competitively and burning so many calories, it certainly wasn't improving during your time, right? No, and
1: I, based on the my direct messages inbox of high school and college athletes today, it is still very much alive. And the research studies that are from the last five years that is in some ways getting worse um, because of social media and the internet are creating this idea that a 28-year-old Olympian diver, a female diver's body is what excellence looks like and should therefore be applied to a 19-year-old's uh, elite athlete diver body when they're at a completely different physiological stage of life, when they should be softer. There should be that. It sh- there, we need to make space for it. But we're not acknowledging and valuing the different path. And that is, that, that still hasn't changed. And that's why I'm writing the book because we have to, we have to make that, um, fundamental shift in our thinking.
2: Yeah. Besides reading the book, if people want to participate in making competitive sports, good for a girl, what is what something they can do? What do you tell people?
1: Um, I think that, well, there's other books that you can read. (laughs) (laughs) I think doing work on understanding, um, body liberation, because these are, these are, not just female athletes. These are female bodied people in the world that are dealing with societal forces. I mean, we expect culturally women to be at war with their bodies. That is just, we just expect it that we will have some diet or some dissatisfaction, some magic number of pounds that we we're still over. I mean, these things we talk about them. This is not like something everybody experiences, but it's so common that people talk about it over brunch. People talk about it on their run. People probably talk about it in the water polo pool. It's, it's that incessant. And so if we can't examine that and question that, should we have 50% of the population at war with their bodies and have um, static clogging up uh, valuable real estate in their brain uh, that they could be using on their passions, on their unique contributions to the world, on loving bigger, on feeling more joy? Are we willing to pay that price? And by looking at the sports, we can see how the price shows up in injury rates, in bone density, in menstrual dysfunction. And so I can make an argument through sports that's compelling, that says, here's how we can measure it. It's much harder to measure on a societal level, but both are influencing each other.
2: You've been concerned that drawing attention to bodily experiences that are different, female-bodied experiences, male-bodied experience, and so on, could be weaponized by people who want to continue to either deny certain opportunities to female-bodied athletes or to deny trans athletes an ability to participate on the teams they should. Have you seen evidence of that? How did you reconcile that, if you have?
1: Absolutely. I mean, difference has historically been um, a weapon for exclusion and oppression, And any difference that you can point out, see, you are different, you're not fully human, you aren't fully deserving of rights as determined by the group in power that tends to be mostly straight white male, um, cisgender male. And so we, we still have those factors it's safer than it's ever been to talk about difference. Um, In Black Lives Matter movement, people talking about, I need you to see color. I don't want you to be colorblind. I need you to actually see that my lived experience is different than a white person in order for me to have a shot at equal thriving, right? That's the stage we're in, in in culture right now that I think is an exciting time, but it's still not totally safe. And when you look at the main arguments used to harm the trans community, it is people leaning into those biological based differences and then making the leap that that is enough of a reason to exclude, oppress and dehumanize an entire group of people that deserves to participate in sport in gender affirming ways that deserves all the benefits of sport that are available.
2: Well, the listener writes, I'm not a runner and never have been, but I wonder when I see women line up at the starting line, what would women choose to race in at, say, the Olympics if they could choose? I've assumed those tiny suits with bare midribs are for speed and coolness. Are they? I mean, it's hard to speak for all women, but I guess the yeah. other question of whether or not those suits actually do confer some kind of um, advantage, <laughs> especially yeah. for distance oh. running. <laughs> Let's be
1: honest. If they were advantageous, men would be wearing them um, and they're not. So it isn't about that. It is about the objectification of the female body. Now, similar to one of the earlier questions about how um, women and girls can be the greatest cause of our own pain by perpetuating the body talk, the weight talk, the box of raisins. The same is true, I believe, in uniform selection. Some small percentage of these female athletes truly do feel better in a bathing suit bottom and a little crop top and having as much skin showing as possible. And there's no internalized male gaze involved. I'm sure there's some percentage that are. But like high heels, it is something that a lot of us have taken on as a symbol of femininity, of of value of power that is it really, if it comes with back pain, is it, is that uniform really the symbol of professionalism? If it comes with body dysmorphia and significant battles in your mind, you must face before stepping on the line. Um, you know, I question that. And so I think if people really did get to choose, they would choose a wide variety of things. And I think that that's okay, but we have to you know, we really need to make sure that we provide all of the options and that there aren't rules Like, because there are. There's archaic rules existing in pretty much every sport that are codifying in less fabric, tighter fitting fabric on the women's sports side, but not the men's side.
2: We're talking with elite runner and coach Lauren Fleshman, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kidd. The Sissner writes, athletes men or women are objectified by society it's not just focused on women yes men wear tight shorts yes men too are presented in sexual ways the key is to address these issues as societal issues that affect us all as opposed to setting us apart from one another what do you think about that lauren
1: yeah i think that there is in a lot of the discussions um about equity there is the what about right what about men what about white people what about everyone, right? We all suffer. We all feel pain. We all experience harm. Um, What I'm saying is I'm not an expert in men's sports. I'm an expert in my experience through women's sports. And I believe that if we focus, I mean, the research shows we're disproportionately affected by these things. Our risk of anorexia is double that of male athletes. Our risk of bulimia is double that. Our risk of depression, anxiety, all of these things. Yes, men get it too, but we're having it more. And so we need to, I think, focus sometimes on the group that's experiencing the most harm. And then if we can drive the change based on them, we're going to be able to impact those being harmed the most. And yes, the benefits will extend beyond that group. Men will experience positive effects too. And one great example of this is parental leave. You know, that parental leave for all genders, I know it doesn't exist everywhere, not even close, but even the concept of it wouldn't exist if we hadn't had female-bodied people entering the workforce with their own biological differences and, and demands that then a right was fought for, a policy was fought for, and then the entire group of people could then say, hey, actually, that's just a good idea for everyone, And but we have to focus. So I believe focusing on female athletes is a critical part of getting the best possible change for everyone.
2: Amy writes, thanks for this excellent program. I wanted to be a runner growing up, but was always seen as, quote, too big. Thankfully, I started running later in life, and now it's my passion. But even today, when I tell strangers that I've run 10 marathons and an ultramarathon, the first thing they do is look down at my body shape, and their face reads, how can she run when she's so big? Turns out those thunder thighs are really good at getting up big mountains, <laughs> and I routinely beat men and women who are half my age at trail races. That's Go, Amy. amazing!
1: This is such a great comment because it is so illustrative of the idea that there is some ideal, and we've all been... Swimming around in that, and and that is why we look a little bit longer at the body when someone tells us what they do. Uh, and but we, if there's one thing I want people to take away from this, please stop talking about people's bodies, in particular women's bodies. Just stop. Just ex- and, and take the assumption. Take. Un- take the understanding that you are going to have biases. They're not helpful. You're com- like, I had people say, oh, but you don't look like a distance runner. You look like a heptathlete. And I'm like, what was the point of that conversation? Like, I just don't understand. It seems harmless to you. But to me, that plants a seed that's just one of many more seeds that's been planted in my life. And I think if more people knew how harmful those little comments were, they would stop doing them because I believe most people don't want to upset, you know, upset people and cause harm and self-doubt.
2: How is running for yourself today different from when you were a competitive runner?
1: It looks a lot more like it did when I was a kid. Um, And I'm not, I think that sometimes in these conversations around feminism and sport and holistic health, it's viewed as like health versus perform, or sorry, health versus competitiveness, that those two things can't coexist. And so uh, when I answer this question, I'm always afraid that someone's going to think I'm saying it's so much better if you just take the competitiveness out of it. And that is absolutely not the case. And when you read my book, I think it's more of a matter of because we have the systems we have, it makes it harder to stay connected to your joy because of the systems we have and those friction points. It is not impossible. And there are many beautiful moments of joy and connection throughout the way, but we can eliminate those friction points so that it's easier to hang on to ourselves. And I now have a beautiful relationship with running that I'll hopefully have for the rest of my life.
2: Lauren Fleshman, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. The book is Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. Thank you, Grace Wan, for producing today's segment. Form is also produced by Caroline Smith. Marlena Jackson-Ratondo is our engagement producer. Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, and Jim Bennett. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you, listeners. Have a great weekend.